Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are one day under two weeks before this thing is happening. And as we all know, election days are not what they were in the, you know, in the old days. Uh, election day has already started. Um, I saw some, there's a few people who have uh, Twitter presences, uh, you know, kind of academics who study voting, who do kind of big spreadsheet tallies, and they kind of update them on websites they have, and they do updates on Twitter. And, I, and uh, one of these is a guy who I think we actually did an inside briefing with. Uh, his name is McDonald. He's, he's down at uh, one of the universities down in Florida. And he's the guy who tabulates early voting and, and tabulates lots of voting. But early vote, the early voting process is one of the big ones. And uh, he did an update uh, I saw yesterday, and I don't remember the exact number, but millions of people have already voted. I think it's maybe maybe even tens of millions. I can't remember. But the point is, lots of people have already voted. We know this. Many more people are going to vote over the next two weeks. And there will even be, in some states, uh, depending on how court cases go, a number of states where votes will still be able to be received after election day. You can't vote after election day, but if you drop it in the mail, and again, some jurisdictions drop it in the mail on election day, it'll still be counted if it comes in, you know, two or three days late. I have to emphasize, this is not the case in many, many states. In many states, if you drop your mail-in ballot in the post office, you know, in the box the day of, or even the day before, the day before that, your vote will not count. If you're voting by mail, vote now. Look how it works in your state. In many cases, your vote has to be in by election day. I don't want anybody to be confused. But the point is, uh, election day has already started. And we know that often, at least in a cinematic sense, election day does not stop on election day. It can, it can run days or weeks into the future. And yet, for all this, we're two weeks out. And we were just commenting uh, before we started recording today about that's pretty wild. This is a critical election. And we have been waiting for this day for a long time. In some ways, we're always waiting, you know, kind of people, uh, those of us who obsess about politics, who are very into it as uh, kind of an avocation or a, a big civic responsibility and obsession or even a job covering political news like, like the three of us do. But this is a big one, and we're two weeks out, and that is, that is uh, jarring and amazing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the, uh, the latest news, how it seems to be going, a lot of the, a lot of the crazy stuff that is, that is cropping up um, in the final days as 
the tensions rise as the the recognition of the stakes become more and more clear to more and more people. One of the big things we start to see this late in the process is not just the top of the ticket, the presidential, because we're a pretty politics-saturated country at this point. Everybody knows what's going on at the top of the ticket. But it still takes a lot of people a while to kind of tune in on what's happening in Senate races and House races and gubernatorial races. And those are starting to uh, kick up, and we're starting to get more of a sense of what we may see on Election Day. So a lot of stuff to talk about here with my co-hosts, Kate and David. So, uh, oh, before... um, Forget I cut my finger yesterday. <laughs> you can see this on the on the video version of this. I I, uh, I got a. Is this uh, a woodwork woodwork? You know, it's funny. It's not. Thing? It's a sandwich working incident. Oh, gotcha. You know, for for it's not that bad. It's just kind of in one of those cuts where it's not that bad, but in a bad place, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of on the face of the finger. Uh, as, as for listeners, I I'm very into woodworking, and I only use hand tools, so that puts some limits on on the kind of injuries you can sustain. But uh, this was actually making a, uh, an avocado sandwich of all things. I cut myself. Was it so, worth it? You know, eh, <laughs> overall, I would say in, my, in the larger role of avocados in my lifestyle, yes, worth it. it that particular sandwich, probably not, because it was, it was actually pretty painful. Fair um, <laughs> in any case, uh, I want to remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, it's great stuff. Uh, here at TPM, we are all uh, avid consumers of it. I actually have some right here. I like, like the re- reusable straw too. That's nice. Yeah. Well, this is this is this is this is not something I would have thought of. This is this is uh, my wife came up with this, but it's actually it's pretty it's 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 a pretty good thing. So uh, Grady's has a special offer uh, until Election Day where you can get twenty five percent off any order and as many orders as you make. So you make ten orders, twenty orders, a hundred orders between now and Election Day, you get twenty five percent off all of those orders. So give it a try. It's great stuff. They are the sponsor of our show. And uh, it's one of these things where it's not just that, you know, uh, someone called up our publisher and said, hey, you know, we want to we want to run an ad on your show. Uh, I, I've been a Grady's uh, consumer for years and years and years before they became an advertiser. So it's great stuff. Uh, check it out. Give it a try. Support our sponsors. They are at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And you can get that special discount by using the offer code TPM. So, David, uh, what are we doing? All right, let's take it away. So in a way, it feels a little bit like deja vu, right? In this last stretch before the election, we have the polling averages, the 538s of the world showing like a 90% Biden likelihood win, 10% for Trump. I think even the New York Times maybe had a similar figure for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And yet we still have, you know, multiple reputable national polls showing Biden with like a double digit lead over Trump. It seems like you know, a lot of the signs are pointing, I guess, in his direction. Um, do you, Josh or Kate, have the sense that we are in a similar situation than we that we were in 2016? Or does it feel like this is a more solid, um, just a more solid lead for Biden, a more solid, you know, grounding in his in his likelihood of winning? I'm curious, you know, how you how you're thinking through that. Yeah, I mean, not a pollster, but I think a significant difference this time around is 
there seem to be many fewer undecideds at this stage in the race than there were in 2016. And, you know, a big contributor to Trump's win was those undecideds breaking last minute, all, you know, majority for him. Uh, So that was a big contributor. I think another point is that, um, you know, state polling tends to be even more important than national polling just, you know, due to the Electoral College and that uh, he, Biden, is sustaining bigger leads than Hillary was in um, in the battleground states. Um, so I think those things are different. And then the third big piece that seems to be different is that Biden's favorability is much, much higher than Hillary Clinton's. Um, so, you know, in 2016, it was kind of a case of people really didn't like either one generally. Um, and then broke to Trump at the last minute where the dynamics seem to be different now that people generally do like Biden, um, whereas Trump is the one who's in- incredibly polarizing. I think one thing, the only thing I would add to that, and it, and it fits in with the other points that, that, that Kate just made, is that third party candidates were a much bigger deal in uh, 2016 than they are today. There is a libertarian candidate. There's a green candidate. They are polling uh, some numbers, but it's significantly less. And as is always the case, third party candidates are often a way station for people who don't want to make a decision, who were kind of like, oh, they don't like either. So they're going to vote for uh, the green candidate or the libertarian candidate. So in a sense, it's a function of the unpopularity, the undecidedness. But that is another another part of the equation. And it was critical for Trump because it made it possible to win the Electoral College without getting, I, I think Trump got 46% of, of the vote in, in, in 2016. So, you, you, you know, if you have uh, third party candidates taking 5%, which I think it was in that ballpark, I don't remember precisely, but I think it was upwards of that, maybe 4%, that, that pulls the threshold down to what you can, you know, what you can slip by with. And obviously, he didn't win a majority of the vote, but you still need to get a certain level to be able to pull off an electoral college victory. So that is, that is a, that is a big difference. And one big difference is, is you know, Clinton was not nearly so far ahead. Just kind of simple as that. You know, it was, it was, it was relatively close. As, as unfortunate as that is, it's, it's the reality. And one thing I, I, you know, one thing that people I think will remember from 2016 is you had a number of forecasters having these kind of like, you know, 99% chance of, of Clinton win or, you know, 95% or almost kind of like, you know, statistical certainty. Um, and the 538 uh, forecast was actually pretty different. It was, it was, as I recall, something like 66 or 67% for Clinton and like 29% you know, give or take for uh, Trump. So strong odds, but not a certainty, you know, two to one. You, you roll the dice and, and one out of three times, it's going to be it's going to be Trump. Uh, and now uh, Silver's, um, uh, you know, the forecast or whatever is almost 90 percent. Now, having said all that, you know, <laughs> it, it's still not a certainty. You know, if, if you were if you were rolling the dice with your life on the line and you said, OK, you know, uh, 
roll the dice and you know it's not not one out of ten but you know you get the idea if uh if if you get snake eyes you're dead <laughs> that's that's the, those are still pretty bad odds of dying right um so and and you know the thing i always the, the, what i always fear is we have to remember that biden probably needs to win by anywhere between two to four percentage points just to win so two to four percentage points is just what gets you to actually winning it's not a margin he has to get there just to win he has to win by that much to win um and then you know you figure in some polling error which can be uh two to three percent without things being you know totally wild um still not over but it but in our polarized time this is about as far as you, you know, about as much distance as you get in national polling. Yeah, that's something I was going to say, too, that, you know, I feel that a common refrain from kind of, you know, high profile Democratic pundits on Twitter has been, you know, don't get complacent. Trump can still win. And it's like, I have not seen one Democrat be complacent. I think you see every Democrat, even if there's a poll that has Biden up like 17 points, it's like, you never know. Remember 2016, you know, uh, popular vote, electoral college. Like, I don't think anyone is on the too complacent scale. But yeah, Josh, you're totally right. I think a big lesson learned for people from 2016 is that, you know, a lot of the polling had Clinton winning by three points or so. She, she ended did. up winning by two. Right. Or two but, and a half. It was actually right. very close in terms of but the popular vote. The problem is, you know, we don't pick a president based on the popular vote. So I think people have kind of taken that lesson and turned it into, okay, so Biden has to win by, you know, 15 points, which is just, you know, we're so baked in right now. You've got, you know, almost half on both sides are going to vote their way either time. Every time. And then you've just got, you know, those remainder people who basically get to decide the election. Right. And I think also, you know, some of the polls have shown eroding support for Trump among senior voters. That, mm -hmm. That's a population of voters that votes very consistently and, um, you know, high levels of turnout among that group. And then also like, you know, suburban women, which Trump has been going on this whole you know, racially charged um, crusade for, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to save your neighborhood kind of thing. And like mm -hmm. all of these, you know, racist kind of inflections there. And so those are two groups that did support Trump in 2016 that are, seem to be no longer aligning for him. And that could, that could spell trouble for him as well. Yeah, which I think is a really important factor because, you know, early primaries when Biden's campaign was still really flailing and, you know, for a while there it looked like Sanders might be the nominee. Then I think all kind of the common wisdom was Biden needs to find a way to appeal to, you know, young voters, especially young voters of color, people who don't often vote. And that's been a, a refrain for Democratic candidates a lot, especially since, you know, Obama kind of supercharged that turnout. But you're totally right, David, that what we've seen Biden do is piece together a coalition from especially seniors, especially suburban women, especially, you know, women with college degrees, aka voting blocks that are immensely more dependable than young voters. Um, and it's really, I think, kind of pieced together a base that you're right, siphons off support from Trump. And also that is just historically 
you can depend on them more to deliver the votes to turn out right. in high numbers. I, there I, was that Trump video. Sorry to interrupt, Josh. The um, Trump video when he was released from Walter Reed. You know, he he did a number of these kind of in front of the camera messages straight to Twitter. And one of them was like all caps to my favorite people in the world, the seniors. <laughs> and he was like, you might not know this, but I'm a senior. That and, is uh, my favorite line <laughs> of the campaign so far. So it's like Trump knows that he is underwater, I think, with that group mm -hmm. and is, you know, doing what he can to try to win back some support. But Josh, I'm sorry. What well, were you you know, say? One, one thing I think is important to recognize is that, you know, the, the overwhelm, this is a... <clears throat> This is an election about Donald Trump. That has always been the case. It is the case now. Uh, everybody is sort of united in making it that. So the fact that that uh, Biden is doing fairly well with a lot of these constituencies is mostly about Donald Trump, that people are done with Donald Trump. Uh, there's, you know, one of the very interesting things about this cycle is that no one, no one thinks it is possible that Donald Trump will get the most votes. That is just a given. Everybody knows that. The question is just whether he can win the Electoral College. So the country is 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 done with 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 Donald Trump. Having said that, though, I do think that people underestimate the quality of the campaign that Biden is running that has allowed him to, even with, again, the the advantages of all the negatives about, about Donald Trump, to bring together a lot of groups that are just inherently difficult in our politics to bring together. Very young people, people of color, more, you know, wider suburbs, older voters, these are, these are, it's not a mat, you know, these are not exclusive. These are not groups that are exclusive of each other. They're not groups that are locked in some eternal battle with each other, but there are tensions that politi that politicians can play on be between these groups. And, and I do think Biden has done a pretty good job of holding together or at least leading in a common direction a fairly big coalition of voters. Now, how that plays out after he's elected, if he's elected, that's another question. Um, but again, I, I do think um, it's not obvious or easy that we would be in this position. And, and I think it's easy to um, under, understate, uh, undercredit the quality of the campaign, the the Biden and and his campaign are are running, which is which is again funny because he's known for running bad campaigns. I'm not sure that's entirely like a a fair reputation. I mean, not that many people win the presidency, right? I mean, it's a, by definition, almost all campaigns for the presidency are failed campaigns. Uh, but it's worth noting. One question I had for both of you, and I don't want us to uh, get too deep into a prediction game, but there's been so much coverage and so much attention, and our colleague Tierney Sneed has written about this a lot, about, you know, an oh, drawn-out election contest, you know, not having results the night of, maybe taking days, weeks, potentially longer. But it feels like the conventional wisdom lately has kind of coalesced around a Biden landslide win, right? And I think people like James Carville, you know, 
take him his words with a grain of salt if have said oh we we will have it we'll know who have won the presidency at like 10 30 p.m on election night and um i think even in 2016 it wasn't until like one in the morning or later even that we had a trump victory declared or projected but you know do you expect to uh to know the results of the presidency night of do you think um that's becoming more likely or are you still kind of you know keeping your powder dry not sure if we'll if we'll have a kind of definitive result that night or not. I'm just curious how you're thinking about that. I mean, I think it's just so entirely dependent on how close the race is. You know, if it comes down to waiting for Pennsylvania to count its ballots, that to me is kind of the nightmare scenario because anything that gives Trump the space to call fake foul and to throw it to the courts, like that I think is the nightmare scenario for our democracy. And the only way that happens is if it's like that, if it comes down to who wins Pennsylvania, you know, if it's a 2000 situation, because I think the way that he is precluded from doing that is if if it is a landslide Biden victory, if Biden wins, you know, Iowa and Georgia and you don't who even cares who wins Pennsylvania, you know, I think that just provides a buffer where I'm not saying that Trump still won't try to call foul knowing him, he probably will, but so much is dependent on what institutions are willing to go along with him to kind of enable him to throw this election into doubt and to, you know, conjure up fake mail in fraud accusations. And I just think it becomes harder for those institutions to be complicit if there is such overwhelming instantaneous evidence that Biden has won that it it just doesn't leave so much space for Trump to kind of rile up his base and to get everyone to say this is fake these are fake mail-in ballots if there are enough votes already counted by election night which will be the you know the majority of those would be in-person votes so I just think it makes it makes it harder for the institutions that have to play along with him to get this done to do that. I think, I mean, the thing that I think in terms of is there are a number of states that are potential early evening knockout blows. And the big one is Florida. And mm-hmm. and Florida, obviously, is a, on the one hand, partly it's, it's a state that Trump cannot win without winning Florida. Biden can win without winning Florida. It's harder, but he can definitely, there's many ways that, that he can do it. Trump cannot, absolutely cannot win without, without winning Florida. Um, and Florida has a a vote by mail system where they burn through them the night of. They're all kind of banked early. They've got a system for counting them. Uh, I don't know if it's technically with the day of, but kind of simultaneous to the day of. So all of everything's going to be counted quickly in Florida. And if Biden wins Florida, again, it's sort of a knockout blow. It's it it. It, it is not impossible. Yeah, in theory, you know, wow, Trump won New York. Who who saw that coming? <laughs> but in practice, it, it's not going to happen. And there are a few states like that. Um, there's North Carolina. There's conceivably Georgia. Um, there are even states like Texas, although that gets, you know, much more uh, speculative. But there are a number of states like this where it kind of, you know, maybe they will spend a week counting in Pennsylvania, but it's not going to matter because it'll just be clear that there is no path that that Trump has. Now, what I I am, I would say I'm pretty confident of a Biden win at this point. What I 
what I worry about, and this goes back to the point Kay was just making, is that it's not hard to imagine a situation in which it is close enough that you do get pushed into these uh, day, you know, kind of post-election day counts and not where there's anything wrong. It just got a lot of mail and ballots. takes a while. And, you know, no problem with that. Doesn't mean that the results won't be more or less as we expect. But ju- just think about it this way. Election night, it's close in Florida, but it seems like Trump is winning Florida. That is hardly beyond the realm of possibility. Um, it's probably less likely than 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 Biden winning, but it's totally possible. It is possible, for, you know, probably it's kind of a toss up, but, you know, he wins Georgia. He wins North Carolina. Um, so you really do come into a case where Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan are critical. Arizona's critical. And again, I'm fairly confident he's going to win all of those. But you get into a, a case where, get into a situation where those are all necessary, where it's, you know, still up in the air, a couple days out. And, you know, inevitably you're going to be getting. Th- you're going to have these, um, you know, anecdotes that start getting pushed on Fox News. Oh, they found these ballot boxes and there were these that had no postmarks. And that, again, I, I, I worry a lot about that, even though um, I think Biden still wins. I, I think that it it it. Um, Trump has to get pretty lucky to have things be close enough and to have them be close enough in the right jurisdictions where he can try to get this into the courts. But that could happen. Um, and not only is that um, not only is that potentially catastrophic in the sense that you could have Donald Trump be president again, it's also catastrophic in a much broader sense if the sitting president steals an election and it's pretty clear that he's stealing an election to everybody even if the supreme court may validate his doing so that is a disastrous thing because and again disastrous in a way that goes beyond trump being president again uh this is already someone who um lacks legitimacy in so many ways uh but if you have a case where everybody's kind of like dude (laughs) <laughs> you really not only didn't get most votes, you, you also lost the Electoral College. And somehow we're kind of locked in here by your cronies, you know, in the judiciary and your president again. That is that is truly a nightmare scenario. And I would like to just also make one point about, you know, when we're talking about the speed with which states count their votes, that is not inevitable. You know, it's not it's not a given that Pennsylvania takes forever to count their votes. It's because under state law, election workers can't start counting until election day. A lot of states let their clerks start processing and sometimes even tabulating the votes as they come in. So they don't have to deal with this enormous mountain night of. Um, And, you know, oftentimes that is by design. Oftentimes, those measures are put in place by states' Republican legislatures, along with a host of other things that make voting more difficult, like truncating the early voting time or, you know, making you have a notary to do things by mail or photo IDs or, you know, it's 
a lot of times I think it's Trump kind of gets pinpointed as like he this is the problem and it's like this stuff is much more deep-seated and in a lot of ways the stage has been set for Trump to you know theoretically act like this or to try to throw the the election into contention right Kate, I wanted to ask you about a piece you put up, I think, yesterday, um, a big look at the various Senate races uh, across the country that are closely watched, contested, um, all that kind of stuff, and looking at different scenarios, everything from a blue puddle or splash, I think splash. you maybe called it, to a... Um, <laughs> I like puddle, though. <laughs> to, a blue, to a blue tsunami. So can you give our listeners just kind of the highlights of that, um, sort of, you know, a cheat sheet? of the cheat sheet of what they should kind mm -hmm. of be looking out for or, um, you know, what are just the most important things to know from, from the, the Senate landscape? Yeah. And well, a lot of that piece also kind of goes hand in hand with what we're talking about, which is a huge factor in this election on both the presidential and Senate level is Trump's historic unpopularity. Um, and on the Senate level, that's had an effect of throwing states into contention that Democrats usually have no business competing in, you know, I mean, why is... South Carolina and, and Texas on my list to begin with. Um, a lot of times it's because Trump is running way under his 2016 numbers and incumbent Republican incumbents who have embraced Trump are suffering from those coattails. Um, so kind of the point of the piece is right now, Democrats need to win three Senate seats plus the White House to have a, a bare majority in the Senate. And realistically, that entails getting another seat because for Doug Jones, who's the Democratic senator in Alabama, you know, odds are very long for this time around. Um, so I've kind of charted it out by the states that Democrats are pretty likely to win regardless of what happens top of the ticket. And then the next bucket is kind of toss-ups that could go either way depending on turnout. And then my next category, the blue tsunami category, is kind of these states are really only in contention if it is a Biden landslide. You know, if it's a, a Mondale level crush fest, then Democrats might, you know, a supercharged turnout maybe can win those. So, yeah, long story short, Democrats' easiest path to Senate majority, I think, um, are, is Maine, North Carolina, Arizona, and Colorado. 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 Thank you. Yeah, those are places where the Democrats have pretty much been polling ahead for a while. Um, you know, especially in Colorado and Arizona, where you've got um, the Democrats up by sometimes double digits, you know, those, I mean, in, in Colorado, um, a big pack that's aligned with Chuck Schumer pulled out because they're so confident Hickenlooper will win that they're going to spend that money elsewhere. So um, you got those two, you've got, you know, Susan Collins defending in Maine. She's kind of the last Republican New England holdout to begin with. You've got factors like her deep, you know, unpopularity and her kind of brand as a, a moderate independent has taken some serious dings from, you know, her vote on Kavanaugh and impeachment and the tax bill. So, and you've also got um, her first election with ranked choice voting in Maine, which took out the last uh, U.S. House Republican from Maine. So um, you got kind of those factors there. And then in North Carolina, where we have a sexting scandal, which has done very little to change the polls, it still looks like the Democrat um, will come out ahead. So we've got those. Um, yeah, I won't go through all of them, but in my, in my toss-ups is um, Iowa, 
the special election in Georgia that has a, you know, a free for all that everyone's on the ballot in November, and then it'll probably go to a runoff in January if no one tops 50%. Um, and that race is interesting because you've got Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins are kind of the leading Republicans. So you have the Democrat, Raphael Warnock, who's really polling ahead. But it's this dynamic that that's because everyone is in this you know, it's going to be on the ballot. So you've got the Republican vote very split right now. So kind of the best chance for Democrats in that race is for him to somehow muster enough votes to get over the 50% threshold and win first round. Because, you know, second round, you're going to have, he's only going to be against one Republican. You're not going to have Biden top of the ticket, things like that. Um, so I've got can those I, two. Kate, can and, I mention one yeah. one other thing there? The additional thing, since they, since the, the uh, runoff in Georgia is after the election, that not only is Biden not on the ticket, but if Biden has won the election or, you know, if Biden's won the election, if the Democrats already have the Senate, it sort of shifts everything to uh, Republicans can say, all right, we lost. This is, you know, you got to do this just to kind of be a check on Biden where you can't mm-hmm. do that. So there's a whole, there's another, I, I know you know this just for our, for our listeners, there's that other dynamic that for the Democrats, you really don't want to get into that runoff. Right. You want to settle it on election day. And that's true for the other Georgia race as well, where you have incumbent David Perdue um, against John Ossoff, who ran a pretty a buzzy special House election in 2017. And he ended up, it was a very similar situation. He came really close to the 50% threshold first time and then lost narrowly um, in, the, in the runoff. So uh, yeah, so toss-ups, I have Iowa, um, the Georgia special, and Montana, where you have Steve Bullock um, challenging incumbent Steve Daines. Um, you know, Bullock had an unsuccessful brief presidential run, as did Hickenlooper. And I think the DSCC did very well afterwards by recruiting both of them to run in these Senate races, which for Colorado, I mean, turned it Cory Gardner was already in trouble, but turned it into a pretty comfortable Democratic pickup. And and in Montana, you had a, a race that was not going to be competitive, you know, a Republican lock until Bullock, who was a really popular governor of the state, got in and now is making it, you know, quite close. Yeah, that's interesting. Both like obviously well known within the state, right, mm-hmm. as being governor. And so that's that gives him a little advantage. Right. I guess. Yeah. And, and then in. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and also Montana has a very rich and recent history of ticket splitting. Um, you know, in 2016, they voted by, for Trump by over 20 points and still reelected Bullock as the Democratic governor. And then two years later, reelected John Tester to the Senate, despite an all out Republican effort to unseat him. So, you know, there's kind of a weird, quirky independent streak in Montana that gives Democrats more of a chance than, you know, you would kind of think on spec seeing Montana as a, you know, a, a red state. I, I can't remember. Did did Obama, did Obama come very close in 2008 or did he actually win Montana in 2008? I'm forgetting mm, now. It was, my, ve- I think very close, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right too. I don't, I don't, I don't think he won it, but it was extremely close. It was mm-hmm. definitely in contention. And I think... Was te- I can't remember if Tester was was elected first elected in two thousand six or two thousand eight. I think two thousand eight when he, uh, God, I'm losing. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. There was a guy Conrad Burns. It has Burns. to be two thousand six, right? Because he was up for reelection in twenty eighteen. Okay, right. So, and I think that was uh, when a guy named Conrad Burns, who was a senator from Montana, uh, lost to him. Uh, I shouldn't delve this deep into my memory <laughs> on live on, on the air, but I think. 
I think. Asterisk. Yeah. There's an asterisk here by, by my comment. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's a helpful overview, Kate. Thanks mm-hmm. for that. Um, I th- thought we could maybe spend the last few minutes of the show kind of looking towards the debate tomorrow night. We have had a lot of the Trump side throwing up a lot of dust over the supposed bias of the Commission on Presidential Debates and Bill Stepien complaining that it's not a foreign policy debate as the, uh, I guess, the final presidential one generally is. But, um, you know, the, the commission in, in September, I want to say, or kind of when the debates were announced, already announced, already made clear that the final debate format would follow, you know, exactly what the first one was, which was, I think, six topics chosen by the moderator. And both sides agreed to this uh, before, you know, before the plans are set. Um, what are you expecting? I mean, another another wrinkle, I guess, is that the microphones will be muted after the two minutes for each side. And that's not something the moderator will have control over. I guess it's like the sound engineer or someone. So someone is, it, on the is it automatic? Side. Like literally yeah, it could just be automatic. It might be automatic, too. Yeah. Just that each each side has two minutes. And after that, they just get cut because because I, I know like Kristen Welker, who's moderating, won't have control over like when to mute i think that would a just be difficult to do when you're trying to moderate a debate anyways and also would just put her in an awkward position to have to make that call uh in the moment so yeah you know one of the things i've thought i mean there's a lot of potential weirdness that that comes from that and not you know even in cases where it's not someone like filibustering it's just I don't know, you're literally the last word and you get cut off. But what I think about is, and a number of people brought this up on the prospect of you give the, you know, you give Chris Wallace the ability to cut the mic, that that's one thing on TV, but they're all, even with COVID, they're all just Mm -hmm. a few, few feet apart. They can hear each other. They can hear each other fine. They're going to get picked up on each other's mics. So it's not that if Trump is filibustering um, and I'm using the other meaning of the term here, trying, you know, just trying to hold the ground. Uh, it's not that he will just disappear and go into the vapor. You're just going to hear him in the background like, <laughs> no, no, wrong. You know, so it's, 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 and it's not like if Biden's talking, he's not going to hear Trump. So it's going to. There, there's a lot of potential weirdness there of how that actually plays out since they are right there next to each other. Yeah, I just I think this is so dumb in part because, you know, Trump's hijinks kind of allowed him to escape the town hall debate, which I know when, you know, all was said and done, Biden ended up getting better ratings. And, you know, I think he got good headlines out of it. But as we were talking after the first debate, that was kind of the best format for Biden to shine in direct juxtaposition to Trump. You know, it plays to his strengths, it plays to Trump's weaknesses. And because Trump kind of threw a hissy fit and also got COVID, he managed to get out of that one. And now we're back at one where he's going to do the exact same thing he did in the first one. And my God, if I see one more tweet that's like, well, you know, Trump could modulate himself this time and like win some undecided. It's like, okay, yeah, he could have modulated for four years. The pivot never happened, people. I just don't think he has it in him. So, you know, chances are we're going to get another two hours of Biden being cut off constantly of Trump, like getting into a fist fight with the moderator. And if he doesn't do that, the other 
then it's just going to be so infuriating because he'll be a little bit less of a lunatic than he was last time and will be rewarded with headlines about how Trump modulated himself and was calmer and more presidential and stuff. It's also, I don't know. yeah, okay. to, to that, <clears throat> to that point, he has self lowered the bar. Yep. I mean, he, he, he was like feral in the first, in the, in, in, in the first debate. He, I mean, I, I remember while it was happening, thinking that, and I, I strongly suspect this would be validated by going back and listening to the, you know, watching the video that there were maybe four or five times during the entire debate when Joe Biden was able to speak for longer than 30 or 40 seconds without being interrupted. It was constant and, and, and yeah, you know, and fighting with the, you know, so he, it's not even a matter of modulating. He could be only 70% as crazy and people like, whoa, the new Trump, look at that, you know, mm-hmm. um, but but on the other side of it, and this is what I have been been uh, thinking about and trying to game out in my head the last few days. If you look at where his head is right now, he is about as wild as he has ever been. And that's saying a lot, obviously, right? I mean, he's 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 doing this thing with like with like Leslie Stahl now. You know, attacking Leslie Saul. Ah, where's your mask? You know, <laughs> and you know, calling uh, Biden a criminal, calling Jeff Mason a criminal. <laughs> Jeff Mason's the Bidens like, are a criminal. Yeah, and, and Mason, uh, I can't remember. He's the Reuters. I can't remember Reuters, which. Yeah, yeah, Reuters. You know, one of the most buttoned up by the book reporters out there, and I mean that in in a very generous way. You know, kind of. But not, you know, just very by the book. And Trump's like, I can't remember what it was. He wasn't, wasn't doing. He said he know. was a criminal for not reporting on the Hunter Biden emails yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so, so Trump is is, uh, and you even, you know, you see like in like the thing last night where he's like, eerie. I wouldn't be in this dump if I weren't doing so bad. <laughs> Hope you guys appreciate it. You know, you know. So yeah. he's just, he's, he is at his most wild. So it is very hard to imagine that he's going to be even on the normal side for him, you know, yeah. during this, uh, uh, during this thing. And, uh, you have to, you know, he has on his side, the expectations are if he doesn't come into like violent physical contact with Biden or the moderator, that's like a win, right? For his, for, for his, uh, uh, what, what is it they say? You know, not decency, but you know, civility, Civility, yeah. but you know, he's acting pretty wild. Yeah. And and yeah, no, no. Well, the other part of it that something you said reminded me of too, is I think the whole Hunter Biden, Giuliani insanity has kind of, proven i think it's put you know the quote-unquote media to the test and i think the media has done really well especially compared to how the reactions to stuff in in 2016 was you know you have basically every outlet has not not reported it you know just straight reported this is what it is because 
you know, there's so many red flags. Giuliani's involvement alone is a red flag. The fact that when he was shopping it around, he gave it to the New York Post because he said they were essentially the only ones who wouldn't vet it, who would just publish right. it straight. Even Fox News turned it down, I think, Exactly. Right? And the New York Post has refused to share that, um, you know, quote-unquote evidence, the direct materials of any other outlet to let them vet it. So it's just replete with red flags. But so was stuff that Trump was saying in 2016. And because the media environment and news consumers were not used to, you know, then a major party candidate doing this stuff, everything he said was was newsworthy or was taken with a little bit of credulity, at least. Um, now, I think by the two factors that the media has kind of adjusted to deal with him better and everyone is so weary from the constant assault of insane things that he says that Trump saying something crazy is no longer newsworthy. This story hasn't really been amplified by anyone who is not on the fringes of the far right. And I think that is a testament to how people have learned and, and adjusted and how the environment has been inoculated against Trump's craziness. But now the debate is going to give him a stage where that is all he's going to talk about. You know it. I mean, even at the last debate before we had this kind of fake scandal, he talked about Hunter Biden constantly and made fun of him for his drug problem and seemingly tried to insinuate that Joe Biden is a lesser man because his son has a drug problem. Um, that's all this is going to be about. And, you know, I think the foreign policy emphasis is the tenuous link that Trump needs to make it about this. And we've seen time and time again that even really good journalists can't fact check Trump because he's shameless and he doesn't care about lying and he doesn't care about, you know, the social norms of not talking over people. So it's just, it's going to be a two hour platform of him spouting this baseless conspiracy theory and there's not going to be rigorous fact checking and it's going to kind of get a narrative that he wants. I mean, or at least will be a pretty big test to outlets to not let it be the narrative that he wants. Um, I think so, one, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead, Kate. No, that was, that you. was it. <laughs> I, I think, I think one thing that is one thing we should recognize here is that this is a case where Joe Biden's relative popularity, people generally thinking, you know, liking him, Mm -hmm. They do not support him, but thinking he's a decent guy has a big effect because I think part of what you're part of it, absolutely, is that the the news media has been sort of prepped for something like this. I mean, if you think about it, it's really quite remarkable. You know, everybody's been saying for four years, yeah, I bet they're going to come up with some hacked emails at the last minute and some crazy conspiracy theories. I mean, man, it is like, I mean, imagine everybody just kind of saying you were going to do this for four years and then like you do exactly that, right? <laughs> I mean, like coming right in the front door, okay? But the other thing is that we people may not, people listening to this podcast may not agree with that. But the reality is that a lot of people, and not just diehard Trump supporters, were willing to believe that Hillary Clinton was involved in sleazy stuff, was going to pull some, you know, pull some hijinks, and that you're going to find out about it, what she's saying secretly behind the scenes. I think to a great extent, when uh, people see this stuff about, ah, Boss Biden, Mr. Big, you know, getting the cut 
from the bribe money. Hey, most people, again, rightly or wrongly, maybe, you know, we don't really know Joe Biden, right? The people, those of us who don't know him. But most people, I think, intuitively don't buy that. That's just not really kind of the, the person that, that we're familiar with. So I think a lot of this stuff, and again, since they really need to go for broke now, if you listen to it, uh, you, you know, it's this, it's this international, uh, you know, criminal uh, syndicate, the Biden family, you know, raking in millions or billions of dollars from all over the world. And, you know, the thing is that uh, the Clintons were, uh, before they got to the White House, you know, didn't have a lot of money, even by kind of regular people standards. Uh, at the time, in the 80s, the governor of Arkansas had like a ridiculously low, I think, I think, I'm remembering this correctly, the salary of the governor of Arkansas was $35,000 a year. Now, obviously, money's a little different in the 1980s, but still, that was pretty insane in, 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 in the 1980s. They've made a ton of money since since uh, uh, since uh, Clinton's presidency. A lot of speeches, a lot of, you know, a lot of money moved through the Clinton Foundation. I think most of that going to, like, you know, malaria in Africa. But there was there was a fair amount to work with there. I just don't think people buy th- that about Joe Biden. And that inoculates him a great to a great degree. In addition to the fact that a lot of people are like, dude, <laughs> we, we've done this. Like, and, and I think for a lot of people, I think the calculus is like, I can't rule out something happened, but I'm not going to fall for this a second time. Yeah. And I mean, you're hundred percent right in that this is something we've been talking about on this podcast for months about why Trump has really struggled to find an attack that sticks to Biden because he tried the crooked stuff and the corrupted stuff. And, you know, he didn't have the benefit of building on top of 30 years of what Republicans had been throwing at Hillary and Bill Clinton anyway to build off of. And for better or worse, people think Biden is authentic, you know, and for better that you know, makes him an, an empathetic man. And for worse, that makes him very gaff prone. But that is who he is, I think. And at least that's very much what people see him as. So the corruption stuff just doesn't stick to him as much because there isn't that foundation to build off of. And I think political attacks work best when they are building on at least a seed of suspicion people already had. And it just doesn't fit with Biden. I, you know, I, I'm really curious, and I haven't thought about this in a while, but I've been thinking about it the last few days. I am curious to the extent, I, I don't even remember the woman's name, but these basically rape accusations from like, it must be six months ago now. I don't remember exactly. I think it was in the spring. Uh, but these accusations uh, from this this woman who accused... I think it was Tara Reid, right? Tara Reid, I think. Former Senate aide of Biden's, I want to say. <clears throat> yeah, uh, you know, from... I don't remember exactly when, but maybe the 80s or... I can't remember, but, you know, some time ago. Um, and it was sort of uh, kind of bubbling through the sort of the left media for a while and then kind of broke through. And... Uh, I don't, I don't want to get into the, 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 the details, but it, because I think the consensus is that 
it was not it it did not just end up being unproven i think most people think it was made up um but what but the accusation was a a fairly violent unambiguous rape you know the kind of just sort of uh comes up to someone on his staff and and uh you know basically you know uh penetrating her with his hand in the middle of a Senate office building out in public, you know, this very shocking accusation. And uh, I don't want to get into, you know, all the sort of the back and forth of that story. But once it started getting a lot of attention, uh, it, it started falling apart. There weren't just like inconsistencies in the story. There were major problems uh, and I think one of the things now, maybe, uh, maybe it's the case that it didn't happen. It was a false accusation. And uh, Biden is just lucky that that, you know, uh, he was exonerated to the extent you can be exonerated from these things. But I think uh, many people who had worked with Biden for a long time, you know, knew him as a politician said, wow, this is really this kind of doesn't fit, right? This is not kind of the person we think we know. Uh, a lot, obviously, a lot of a lot of the country doesn't really know Joe Biden. You know, men do this. This happens. This is not, these things are, these are not things that don't happen. We don't know this guy. Maybe he did this. And if he did, that is a shocking thing that makes you think someone like that could do anything. Um, and so I've been curious how much, that not being proven and in a general sense seeming to uh, be discredited in a sense kind of helped inoculate him from other accusations, even though these accusations we're seeing now are of a totally different character from that one. I don't know. And, and again, this is really just me thinking out loud uh, because I do think not just for Trump's accusations, but kind of how this election has shaped up one of the things that has been very powerful for joe biden is this general sense of this is a pretty decent guy this is someone who has a lot of empathy is uh you know has a focus on things that are important and this is a decent guy this is not someone you would expect kind of when the lights go out is like ah, fuck you and give me the money Right. I mean, you, you, that just doesn't play with the person we, 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 we think we see. And I do think that has, that has just been a very powerful force of what has shaped the progress of this campaign uh, to date. And obviously, if that accusation had been true, if the consensus had been, since obviously we cannot truly know whether that happened or not, we weren't there. If the consensus had been, well, maybe he did this or, or, or like it's, he did this, but like he's still better than Trump. That perception that has served him so well would be, I think, pretty different. Well, and that situation was so awful for a myriad of reasons, including that you don't want to be in a situation where you're picking apart a survivor story. I mean, how many times have we seen that happen with Christine Blasey Ford and 
countless women, you know, and it's it's so mixed up in a situation where women are so much more frequently have valid accusations that are disregarded than bring false accusations. Um, and it was, I think, especially hard because Democrats have become the party that at least, even though, you know, this goal is missed sometimes, cares about accusations of sexual assault, punishes people who do it. Um, again, not perfectly, but way more than Republicans do. So it's that was- the principle a, to which they claim to hold themselves. Right, yeah. So that was already, I think, a situation that was causing a lot of heartache for people on the Democratic side. Um, and then it was just so compounded with them, Republicans being like, you say you care about women, like, you know, gleefully kind of holding this up. And I think you're right, Josh, that when her story did fall under the speculation that all women who claimed to be sexually assaulted did, it had very weird holes in it and, um, you know, inconsistencies. And I think part of the reason that that story, that that accusation also didn't have as much steam as it might have otherwise had is that before that, we did have that period of a lot of women coming forward and saying that Biden was too touchy and that he yeah. made them uncomfortable. And I think part of the reason why the Tara Reid accusation kind of didn't have as much power is because we'd already kind of gone through a reckoning of that when the result was Biden is too touchy and needs to adjust his behavior, you know, for the modern era. But during that, none of those accusations were that he was touching people in a sexual manner. You know, it, the thrust of it was much more, he just is personal like- space. Yeah, he's like a yeah. grandpa and he just feels too comfortable touching people. Um, so it was, you know, on its face already kind of strange that then we didn't get this big accusation until, you know, after that had passed, when you would have thought that maybe a survivor would feel emboldened by the other women who were coming forward and, you know, happened to be at a politically advantageous time where Biden had emerged as the, the definite Democratic nominee at that time. So you did have all those factors happening. But I think the fact that it you know, I had honestly forgotten about it until you brought it up just now. And I think which the is, fact- Which is kind of, which is remarkable. And not yeah. just you, but I kind of, we all, it's almost- right. I mean, it was so big and now it's like you barely remember. And to some degree, I do think that that highlights what the a benefit that white male politicians have that, for instance, Hillary Clinton didn't. Because that was a, he kind of wrote out that scandal. I think- um, like you said, the testimonials, testimonials were pretty compelling from people who had worked from him before. And crucially, it's not really enough for us right now to hear one sexual assault accusation by a woman. We don't really start giving them credence until a lot of women come out of the woodwork and then it becomes an overwhelming problem sometimes, except if you're the president, in which case it hasn't seemed to matter. But so you had this one accusation. No one else came out. No one else even came forward being like, yeah, you know what, this was kind of habitual for him. He was kind of gross. You know, he had a disrespect for women. And those stories that usually crop up after an accusation comes out. So you kind of had this. So he he weathered the storm. I think ultimately most people didn't believe the accusation except for people who were already anti-Biden. And then he was kind of allowed to move on from it. And that's just not some... And with you know, Hillary, as we talked about, there was a Republican foundation that was kind of making these attacks maybe seem more credible to people. But 
I think with her case, a lot of people were looking for a reason to not like her that sounded better than I will never vote for a woman as president. And it happened to manifest as, you know, her her emails, which is just on its face ridiculous. Now is even more ridiculous when you see the Trump administration, you know, members of it willy nilly using their private servers. And clearly people didn't care. I think people just wanted a reason to say it that sounded better than I don't think a woman should be president. And Biden doesn't have that same issue. So when he weathers scandals, those scandals are left in the past because people aren't looking for a way out the way they were with Clinton. I think one, you know, one thing, and I have, I have been following Hillary Clinton for 30 years at this point, as, as anybody who's old enough to have been, you know, kind of covering politics or thinking about politics for that long. And it's, it's such a complicated, over-determined thing with her because yes, it is hugely overwhelmingly because she's a woman and not just because she's a woman, but because she entered our political world, not today, but back in the early nineties, which was a different world, right? People, uh, I'm virtually certain I'm remembering this correctly. A big thing in 1992, I think it was 1992, it's small possibility it was 1990, was there were two women in the Senate. Two. 98 men and two women in the Senate. And the, one, of the, one of the sort of the taglines, and there were a number, I think this was the year that Dianne Feinstein uh, went to the Senate. I think it was the year uh, when Patty Murray won her Senate seat in Washington State. And one of the one of the big lines was two percent is 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 good enough for milk, but not for the Senate. Right. I mean, these corny things that sound kind of uh, ridiculous in retrospect, uh, but it is kind of crazy. There was Barbara Mikulski and this woman, Nancy Kassebaum, uh from uh, Nebraska, Kansas, I believe she was from. And even in Kassebaum's case, she was the daughter of Al Smith, who ran for president like back in the 30s. Um, or the twenty losing track. So in a sense, kind of a political legacy um, that, you know, having that leg up, but things were different in 1992. So that is a big part of it, but there's also something about Hillary Clinton that is not just that she's a woman, that she has a kind of both the hold that she has over tens of millions of Americans that made her such a kind of candidate of destiny for so many people, but also tens of million, millions of Americans who've just always been willing to believe the worst about her. And the fact that she's wounded is a huge part of it, but there's, there's, there's some, uh, there's something about her that uh and some of it is like you know if people are trashing you for 30 years you're gonna get some dings and dents right um but it is certainly the case and as as you say kate uh you know this has been such a chaotic process this election this this four years we're gonna kind of need to decompress afterwards and kind of make sense of it all but and this is, I think, as I think about it, what I was kind of trying to say about Biden is in some ways, 
the out the the denouement of that scandal made him stronger. Right? It's not just it didn't destroy him, it actually I think made him stronger. And you have a lot of things with Hillary Clinton and some of the most basic things about the emails that were hacked. There was nothing in them. There was actually nothing in them. There was nothing in those emails. And it became this huge, huge thing. And so, and this has always been, in many ways, this was, this was what the 90s were like for both Clintons, especially for her. But you have all these scandals, none of which, or very few of which, pan out, most of which are just Benghazi, you know, kind of Hunter Biden, QAnon kind of stuff. But the way things worked for the Clintons in the 90s and continued to work for Hillary up until 2016, and even maybe even beyond 2016, is... You know, one scandal, nope. One scandal, nope, nope, nope. You know, they all fall apart. And I mean, I can't even tell you. We could have 20 episodes. We just went over all the pseudo scandals of the 1990s with the Clintons. You know, all the cabinet secretaries they murdered. Right? I mean, it was crazy. But the way it always worked with them was when a scandal was disproven, it still remained a 20% scandal. And when you have... 50, uh, uh, you know, disproven scandals, you still have 10 real scandals, even if they're all disproven. It's just sort of like a pattern of scandal builds up, even though they're all individually disproven. Um, and that is just at some level that remains the story of what happened in 2016. And, uh, and you know, it's you've really, I hadn't thought of it in these terms the point you just made, but I agree that even when her scandals were disproven, they still 30% counted. Mm-hmm. And you got well, 20 scandals and they're all disproven. If 30%, you know, if each, if each count 30%, you're still weighed down with a ton of scandal. Yeah. And I know I need to wrap up, but just one point I wanted to make is that, you know, now kind of in keeping with everything we've said, I think now most people agree that Biden was the right choice for the Democratic nominee going into this election because, you know, he is nice. Most people think he's nice. He hasn't had scandals stick to him that much. People see him as empathetic and, you know, loving and decent. And all of that is a big juxtaposition to Trump. But the thing that I am worried about on my back burner because there's too much to be worried about about this present moment. But what I'm worried about in the future is that Hillary fell victim to such virulent misogyny that still hasn't even fully, I think, been reckoned with, you know, because I think people a lot of times will use her things she did wrong during her campaign to be like, no, see, that's why she lost. Instead of the fact, the very real fact that so many people in this country could not bring themselves to vote for a woman. And it's still happening. And Fox News is doing the same stuff with the up and coming women in the party. AOC is on every primetime show being, um, you know, demonized for something, usually something that doesn't, you know, tangential to reality. And, you know, just a a small anecdote, but I tweeted something last night about her um, live streaming on Twitch, which is a, a gaming live stream thing. 
um, where she was playing a video game with people. And the blowback I got to that tweet was insane. I was so taken aback because it, it wasn't, you know, an opinionated thing. It was just, here's what she's doing. And, you know, I even have people email me at TPM to say that she is, um, you know, that, it, that this isn't cute. This isn't funny. Like, this is going to be the reason conservatives run America for the next whatever many years. And none of it really makes sense. The way that Hillary stuff didn't make sense. Exactly what you're saying, Josh, in the way that the emails were nothing. Benghazi was nothing. You know, going back and back and back to Whitewater and to, you know, the fact that people still hold it against Hillary that, you know, Bill had an affair. All this stuff kind of comes from the fact that the the misogynistic vein in this country is larger than I would have thought after 2016. And, you know, I think Democrats have done well in choosing Joe Biden, a man who does not inspire those same hatreds for this election where the stakes are pretty enormous. But it does make me wonder going forward, you know, when is it going to be a woman atop the ticket again? And will people, will people ever vote for, for her? I don't know. I mean, just one, one final point, picking up on something you just said. Uh, when you, when you talked about people emailing you who probably support AOC, who support, you know, people who are on her side, still like, oh, you know, that's why we're gonna, you know, it'll be a disaster. She's, she's making herself seem frivolous. I think another thing that I am keeping my eyes out for is there's something about Democrats with this. Always, um, you know, sort of afraid of their own shadow. Um, Always looking for ways that the people who they admire and want to support are actually blowing it and it's their fault. And uh, one of the things that I have seen the beginning of in this cycle is, you know, kind of like if I, if, if I see, and I didn't see the video you're talking about, but it sounds like, you know, this is what you do on Twitch. You play video games, right? You kind of, you, you, for people who haven't seen this, you kind of generally you're, you both watch the video game, what you see on the screen. You also see the person, you know, kind of there with their little controller or something like that. And if I saw that, I might think, oh, okay, yeah, I'm sure people are going to like the the sort of the Leslie Stalls and all the kind of the, 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 the big wigs are going to say, oh, that's like, that's juvenile and that's diminishing her. But I think Democrats should say, do I think that? Does it actually diminish her to me? Or am I worrying about like what uh, what Brit Hume is going to say, or what, what, what Wolf Blitzer is going to say? And what I hope is coming out of this cycle, although what you've just described, Kate points in the other direction, is a little more like, yeah, that's fine with me. That's fine with me because people play video games, and I'm not going to be worrying about what this or that person says uh because because in almost every case republicans are not that is not how they think um but we shall see yep 
Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Well, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Iced Coffee. They got a special offer just for you guys, just for fans of the Josh Marshall Podcast. 25% off now until Election Day. Anything you order, and as many times as you order before Election Day, go to Grady'sColdBrew.com, use the offer code TPM, and you get 25% off on any purchase. It's really great stuff. We all drink it, and we drank it even before they were they were our sponsors. So uh, if you haven't tried it before, for, go give it a try. And if you have tried it before, there's a good chance to get a, a, a big discount. So go Absolutely. to Grady'sColdBrew.com. One quick reminder, just for our listeners, we'll be back tomorrow night after the debate with another special quick recap episode. So keep an eye on your feeds for that. And um, we'll be back next week with our regular episode too. All right. Later. All right. All right see thanks. You Bye.